I found out this morning that even in cold weather, the inside of a large cruise liner like that can get very, very warm. People with disabilities cannot get out because there are no elevators. They're no longer working. There's no power. And for days, that huge cruise liner, as you know, drifted aimlessly and people suffered. I am sure when they planned that vacation, they were not envisioning what they experienced. I was thinking about this as I considered our text this morning because those huge cruise liners, and I've been on a few, I've been on the Carnival, Royal Caribbean, they're so big, they're so wonderful that when they're cruising the Caribbean and they find out about a storm somewhere, they can immediately bypass that storm, move away from that storm, and go to another island in the Caribbean. They're all equally beautiful. The point is, they do not carry you into the storm. They don't want the kind of experience that people had this last week on that crippled carnival cruise liner. But this morning, we read a text where God carried James and Peter. God carried the church into the storm of opposition by man for the sake of the gospel. The opposition of man and the omnipotence of God. God's omnipotence, God's power, God's ability to do His will. God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. And it was God's will to carry God's people into the storm. Our text is about God's word being multiplied and increased through this storm. Through the opposition of man and the hand of God overcoming that opposition. And I believe that the large main biblical point is man's opposition, God's omnipotence, and God overcoming man's opposition, and God's word multiplying and increasing. And that is the big picture, and that is what this is about. And we're going to talk about that. But I believe that the application, I believe that the word of God to you and me this morning is the following. God carries us into and out of the storm. The main point, I think, of application for us is that God, God carries us into and out of the storm. What's the storm you're facing? Is it it a relational storm? Marriage, parenting, is it a vocational storm? Is it a a storm at work? Is it a storm at at school, which you're trying to study and become equipped to do? Is it a financial storm? Is it a storm created by the fact that we have preached the gospel and people now don't like us? Perhaps we have incurred their wrath. Here's the point. God carries you into the storm and God will carry you out of the storm. See, before we start this today, I've got to talk to you about the fact that God is sovereign. And that God is the one that carries you into the storm and God is the one that will carry you out of the storm. 
You're not in the storm that you're particularly in because you stumbled into it. You're not in the storm you're in because man independently caused it to happen around you. You're not even in this storm because Satan somehow kidnapped you apart from God knowing about it and smuggled you into the storm. No. God allowed it to happen. Nothing can happen to you, dear Christian. Nothing can happen to anyone. Nothing can happen that God does not allow. That's a bedrock. Because if something could happen that he did not allow, then he would cease to be God. That's unacceptable. But I understand what you're thinking, but Al, you've just opened a whole nother set of questions for me. Because I'm in a pretty serious storm right now, Al. Well, welcome to the crowd. So am I. I've been in some serious waters here recently. Some of them, I didn't even know they occurred until about a year ago, and I got asked to get on the ship, and I got on, and I went, whoa. I got on the Carnival Cruise Liner, And I had my little hat, my little sombrero, my shorts, my flip-flops. I'm on the deck sipping my little drink. I peered around and I said, "Ah, look, a big storm. Ah, I'm sure the captain's going to just take us around that storm. It's like, it's getting closer. Hey, I know you got a bunch of fancy instruments up there, but I see a huge storm. You're going right into it. And the Lord just said, yep, I'm going to carry you right into that storm. And I'm going to carry you out of it. I didn't sign up for that one, Lord. I just like to chill out on the deck, man. I'd like the plumbing to work, you know. Like the AC to work. I'm not into Gilligan's Isle here, you know. I just want to have a cruise, go home. See, because the question it begs is this one. Why? Okay, I got it that you're sovereign. You have to be sovereign overall or you're not sovereign at all. Nothing happens that you don't allow. But now this whole problem of why comes up. Why? Well, we're going to answer that question in this sermon. But let me just give you this before we do. It is the Lord that carries you into the storm and out of the storm. And you may be asking why, because you're being carried into it, and you're on that cruise liner, and it is miserable, and there is stuff on the floor that stinks, and you stink, and it's hot, and people are going crazy, and you're just eating like cold onion sandwiches. And you were hoping for lobster every day. And you're saying, why? But before you get too intense with the captain, remember this. The God who carried you into your current storm, dear Christian, is the same God who has carried you out of the greatest storm any human being will ever face, and that is the storm of his righteous wrath against your rebellion and sin. Jesus has carried us out, Christians, of the storm of God's judgment by living the perfect life that we could never live, by dying the sacrificial death on the cross to take our punishment, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. And Jesus, oh, he delivered us. He carried us out of the storm by rising from the dead and then ascending into heaven. Ruling and reigning. Our sins are forgiven. 
So friends, we can trust him in our current storm based on the fact that he has carried us out of our greatest storm. And dear unbeliever, thank you for being here this morning. But may I appeal to you that whatever storm you might be facing, maybe that's the reason you're here. There's a relational problem. Your marriage is in trouble. You've lost your job. You're looking for a temporary resolution to that. Thank you for being here. But I've got some news for you. There's a greater storm looming on the horizon. You're in a Cat 1 hurricane. There's a Cat 5 coming. You're in a tropical storm. You're in a summer thunderstorm. And there's a Cat 5 coming. And that cat five is the storm of facing a righteous judge before whom you stand guilty. And the storm is coming. And I appeal for you to bow your knee before that judge and repent and believe that he, what he did for you to carry your judgment because the judge is Jesus, the very one who bore the judgment for you. Palm Vista, God carries us into and out of the storm. And what helps us when we're shouting up at the bridge going, no, 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 don't go there. I see the clouds. I see the light. No, no, no. The waves are big. I get seasick. No. At that moment, or even when you're in it, just remember, he delivered us from the greatest storm. But we've got to look at the storm. And we've got to look at the storm that God carried the church into, the early church here in Acts 12. And we have to see how he carried them into and out of the storm of Herod's opposition to the gospel. So, point one, man's opposition. Look at Acts 12.1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Immediately, our attention is drawn to the contrast between God's hand which was on the disciples to preach Jesus to the Gentiles in Antioch. Remember that? Chapter 11, verse 21, when it said, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Chapter 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was upon them, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So contrast that hand, God's hand with them to preach Jesus, to Herod's violent hands being laid upon the church. The contrast could not be greater. The question is this. Whose hand will prevail? God's hand or Herod's hand? And it's the same question that most of us face today. Whose hand will prevail? The hand of God in my life or the hand of whatever opposition I'm facing, whatever thing I'm looking at, whatever thing you're thinking of right now, whose hand will prevail? Because Early on here, it looks like Herod's hand was prevailing. Look at verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Remember, there were three disciples who were the closest to Jesus. Peter and then two brothers, James and John. They were called the sons of thunder. James, the apostle James, is the one who's killed here. One of the key leaders of the church. Herod being a Jew, but a Jew who was a political leader, given the privilege to call himself a king by the Roman Empire, 
So the Roman Empire recognizing the religious leadership of the Jews, the Sanhedrin and all that, but they wanted a political leader, so they chose Herod. Herod was the political leader. A long line of Herods had been ruling politically. He's a Jew, but he's a political leader. And the Roman Empire said, we'll let you leave. We'll let you be the king of that area of Judea. He's a Jew. So he's thinking, let me win favor with the religious guys by killing the leader of this sect, this Christian sect. And he's a political leader, so he's thinking, these guys are getting big and powerful. Remember, probably five to 8,000 believers now in Jerusalem are Christian. Jewish, but believers in Christ. So what does he do? He captures one of the three top guys, James, and he kills him. And he sees that that pleases them, so he arrests Peter and he throws him in jail. He doesn't just arrest Peter. Look at this. He throws Peter in the deepest, darkest jail with the strongest guard you can have. Look at verse 4. And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending um, after Passover to bring him out to the people. So four squads, probably the four watches of the night. Okay, I got from 10 to 2. All right, you've got from, you know, two to four, and I just blew it because there's more than, that's not at four, but you know what I got, okay. So there's squads, two guys that are going to sleep with Peter, two guys at the door, two guys here. These are just top flight airborne ranger guys. Why did he choose four squads? Why such maximum security, two chains on his hands? Well, I'll tell you why. Old Peter, he had a reputation for nighttime jailbreaks. Look at Acts 5, 17 to 21. I think I have it here for you. Acts 5, 17 to 21. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. And Peter, at this point, was kind of the leader there. And put them in the public prison. So this was a minimum security prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, Herod, not taking any chances. No, I'm going to try you, Peter, and I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Remember, this is during Passover, so you couldn't kill him during Passover. Herod's a Jew. He knew that. So he's going to kill him the next day because Passover now had ended. It was nighttime. The next day, he was going to take him out, try him, and kill him like his grandfather or father was part of trying and killing Jesus during Passover. But God is going to deliver Peter during Passover like he delivered Israel from Egypt during the first Passover and like God delivered us through Christ on the Passover that ended all need for Passover when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Do you see that? This is rich. This is biblical theology. We need to understand the symbols here. And now look what's happening in verse 5. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word there, church, is ecclesia. It's the people of God. So here you have the Jewish leaders, a political leader in agreement with the religious leaders, wanting to kill Peter, just like they wanted to kill and did kill Jesus years earlier. And now, 
Now you've got the church, God's people, his true people, the ecclesia or the ecclesia of God, praying in private, in homes, interceding to God. And the question is, whose hand is going to win? Herod's hand, violently seizing, killing James, wanting to kill Peter, putting him in maximum security, in chains, squad of soldiers around him, or God's hand? Let me ask you a question. What do you think they prayed? And it says here, right, in verse 5, B, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Some say that they prayed for his release. Others say that when you read the rest of this text and you find out how surprised they were when Rhoda told them that Peter was at the gates, they actually called her crazy, that they weren't praying for that. They were actually praying that he would remain bold and courageous in the face of certain death like Stephen did, like James did. I don't know. I don't know. But I think that we can learn from this text When we are going into the storm or we are in the storm, oh, friends, let us pray. Let us pray. Personally, I think the bulk of their prayers were that Peter would remain faithful, that he wouldn't be a coward, that Peter would not flinch back from preaching Jesus as Messiah, even though he knows that if he preaches that, he's going to be killed. He was there when Stephen was killed. He was there when James was killed. He knows where this is going. Things are heating up. Public opinion is against him. And so I believe the prayer was, oh Lord, give Peter boldness. Give him faith. Don't let him back down. Don't let him accuse God. Let him remain faithful. Let him trust God. Let him even have joy in this moment. And oh, friends, in your situation, I would say this. It's okay to pray for God to deliver you from the circumstance. I'm not saying it's not. But perhaps, perhaps God has fixed the fix God has fixed the situation so that he would teach you how to have faith, how to trust, how to say to the captain as you're finishing your final ice cold drink, knowing electricity will be cut off as you hit that storm. I'm with you. Let's go. And have joy. Or you're in the storm and just being battered all around and like hanging on to your things and the ship is listing and maybe the AC is off and the plumbing isn't what it should be and you're eating cold onion sandwiches and you're saying, Lord, thank you, you're working here. Maybe he's got you in the storm to work something in you. And so we should be praying, Lord, may your will be done, your kingdom come. It's okay to pray, deliver me. Give me the job, Lord. Help me with the finances. Lord, please deliver me from that person who's wrongly treating me. It's okay to do that. I'm sure they included that. But let's pray to be faithful. Let's pray to be faithful. Well, let's look at God's omnipotence, point two. Man's opposition, God's omnipotence. God had other plans for Peter. And here we see that God's hand 
prevails. God's hand prevails. Remember, we said that omnipotence is defined or can be defined as God being able to do all his holy will. That's omnipotence, all powerful. He's able to do all his holy will. So his holy will was that he had other plans for Peter. Interesting, his holy will was that James should die. That should be instructive. They both fulfilled God's will. But his holy will... God's omnipotence was that Peter should be delivered. The hand of God rules sovereignly over the affairs of men to carry out his will, to carry his people into and out of the storm. This is what we learn from this incredible narrative of how God delivered Peter from Herod's violent hand. Look at verse 7. 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door, guarding it. Isn't it amazing? Peter knows he was about to die the next morning. He's aware of it. He hears the soldiers. Maybe they'd become friends with Peter. Maybe they felt badly for Peter. They don't understand all this stuff. Two guys are sleeping next to him. Can you just picture it? I mean, I'm just thinking... Burly centuries are definitely snorers. Okay, I'm thinking they're snoring. Peter's got chains on his wrist. They weren't light chains. These were heavy chains. But he is so trusting God that he's sound asleep between two rough guards snoring. He is trusting God and the church is praying. What a picture. What a picture for you and me. Are we trusting God in the midst of our storm? Metaphorically speaking, are we sleeping with chains between two snoring guards? How'd you sleep last night? Ah, God wants to give you sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. Are you able to sleep soundly? That's a metaphor for are we trusting in the midst of the storm? Are we trusting in the midst of the storm? We do read in verse 7 that he was so soundly asleep that the angel had to strike Peter. That Greek word strike is very, very distinctive. I mean, I mean it's, it's a pretty, it's a shot. I'm thinking it's a shot in the ribs. He wakes him up. Notice the detail in this narrative. By the way, Peter, most likely, is the eyewitness who is giving Luke all these details. I mean, mean, look at the detail. He strikes him in the side. He remembers exactly what the angel said to him. Get up quickly at the end of verse 7. He remembers that the chains fell off of his wrists. Oh, friends, God delivers. God delivers. God's hand can take the chains off of your wrist in the appropriate time. He delivers Peter. We're in God's hands. That's what what this is communicating to the first century church. You're not in Herod's hands. You're not in Caesar's hands. The ruling, the emperor. You're in God's hands. And God's hands at all times. And God can remove the chains whenever he wants I mean, this next part, this is like right out of a Hollywood script. You've got highly trained guards who would kill you at the drop of a hat, who know that they will be killed if you escape. And, And the angel is telling him, get up and get dressed. First of all, have you ever tried to get dressed around someone that's highly trained to, to move at a moment's notice? Have you ever tried to get dressed? 
Like if someone's sleeping, if you're married, your spouse, and, you know, it's dark, you're falling over everything, you know, they're waking up. Hey, what are you doing? It's like, I mean, he's getting dressed. Peter is like getting his sandals on, to, down to that detail. Get your cloak on. Amazing. What does that communicate to you? That God, that God knows every detail of our storm. Every detail. And the fact that he tells Peter to get dressed quickly. To me, it reminds me of when God said to Israel, remember the feast of unleavened bread. Why was it unleavened? Come on. Because there was no time to leaven it because they had to escape Egypt and God said, get up quickly, go. And the angel of the Lord says, get up quickly, go. Do you see the symbolism? God delivers us as he delivered Israel out of Egypt. Ultimately, as Jesus delivers us out of sin and he's delivering Peter, it's God. God knows every detail of our storm. That's what the first century heard. That's what we need to hear this morning. And what I love about this is that Peter, look at verse 9. Peter, he still thinks he's dreaming. And he went out and followed him. So they're stepping over these guards. They're getting dressed. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, I sleepwalk. Yeah, it's scary. I sleepwalk. I once went to a conference with some guy, and we were in this room and two separate beds. And he, in the next morning, he looked at me. He was like, he's, are you okay? I said, yeah. I said, what happened? He says, in the middle of the night, I woke up. And he said, and you were leaning over me. Your face was like that far away from my face. He said, I almost had a heart attack. You didn't say anything. You kind of stood up. And you went back and you laid down. I don't remember anything. And he says, the whole night, I was just like this. I couldn't sleep. I was like looking over at you. I've been known to say a few things in my sleep, too. So Peter just thinks he's sleepwalking. He thinks he's just talking in his sleep. He's dreaming. He'll be dead tomorrow, but hey, he had a nice dream. You know, I had the SEAL Team 6 come in and rescue me. But he wasn't. And what does that tell you? Listen, everything turns upon God's gracious initiative exercised through this angel. Peter is fast asleep. He contributes nothing to this other than sheer incomprehension and incredulity. He couldn't even believe it was happening. Pinch me. Someone wake me up. No, you are awake. You are awake. So he passes through, picking up the narrative here, he passes through the two guards, verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. Look at this at verse 10. And it opened for them of its own accord. Oh no, it didn't open for them of its own accord. It opened for them by the invisible hand of God. The invisible hand of God. God opened that gate. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left them. And in verse 11, Peter gives us the confession for the first century church and the confession for the 21st century church. I have it here on the... um, Overhead, verse 11, and when Peter, Peter came to himself, he said, quote, now, I, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now I'm sure 
that the Lord sent his angels, re, angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Friends, God's hand delivers God's people from the storm. God's hand carries you into the storm and God, God's hand delivers you out of the storm. Punto. End of discussion. Peter wakes up. That's what it says there. After the angel left him, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. So he's finally awake now. He was awake, but he realizes this is for real. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, John Mark will be with us for a little while here. He's a key person. This Mary is probably one of the wealthy women that supported Jesus. She probably had a large house in Jerusalem. You know, I, I think of Pucha and her large house and how we have meetings over there. We do new members luncheons there. We do new members or uh, guest luncheons there. We do a bunch of stuff there. So I, I just think it helps me to imagine someone like this. So you have Mary and she has a large house and it's big enough to have a bunch of people. So everybody's over there praying. It's probably about five in the morning, maybe six. It's right before daybreak. Talk about the Lord delivering Peter at the last minute. He's about to get tried and executed as soon as the sun comes up. He gets delivered. And they're praying. And so, of course, what happens? Peter knocks on the gate. They probably have, they have a servant named Rhoda. She's probably a believer. She's probably praying with everyone else, but she is a servant, so she wants to you know, serve her family, so serve that family, so she walks out to the gate. She knows Peter, and basically Peter you know, greets her, and she freaks out. She freaks out. She doesn't open the gate. She doesn't unlock the gate. She runs back inside, and she tells everybody, hey, he's here. I heard him. He's right outside. And of course, what do they tell him? You're crazy. Her, you're crazy. You're nuts. There's no way. You're out of your mind. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now that could either mean a messenger, angelos can either be messenger, or literally an angel. I mean, there, there are scriptures that talk about God's angels as minister, ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. I mean, that's Hebrews 1, 14. Hebrews 13 says that we should not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. I don't know. It's cool. (laughs) God is working. He has ministering spirits. They are angels. Whether she thought it was literally his guardian angel, or he was dead and it was in whatever, or it was a messenger from Peter, they didn't believe her. But look what happens. Look what happens. They come out. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. So finally they hear the knocking for themselves. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now imagine this. Imagine a bunch of very emotional, loud, crazy people. Now, I know that's hard to imagine in South Florida, but if there were some people like that. And all of a sudden they see Peter. So what's happening? Everybody at the same time is screaming out, hey, how did this happen? What happened? Did you escape? How did you get out? What, where's Herod? Are the guards? I mean, just everybody's screaming at him. So much so he had to hold up his hand. Basically said, shut up. 
And then he explains to them. And then they give glory to God. And what do they realize? They realize this, and this is the point that is for us, that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Ephesians 3. And God is glorified when we acknowledge and we make known His answers to prayer. Dear believer, in the midst of your storm, what's so precious to God is your prayer is ascending like incense and you're praying through the night and it's five in the morning. And you know what? Maybe you sort of don't really believe that that God is hearing or I'm tired and I'm sleepy and I need another Cuban coffee and someone help me. And all of a sudden there's this knock on the door and Rhoda hears it and she goes and you're praying and you're just sort of like on your last gasp. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, almost six o'clock and they're going to kill Peter too and they've killed James and oh Lord this is so hard and what are you doing God and someone says hey it's Peter ah you're crazy and Lord let me keep talking to you hey it's Peter I said you're nuts it's his angel oh God I'm just praying to you and like all of a sudden you hear the knocking let me go see and you see Peter and God God does beyond what you could have imagined Now, Peter exits the stage here. He tells him to tell James, this is a different James. This is James, Jesus' brother, who ended up being a pillar in the church. And in Acts 15, James will be one of the leaders of the Council of Jerusalem. He says, go tell James, go tell the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And then he departs, verse 17, and he goes to another place. Now, we don't know where Peter went, but we do know this. It would have been real easy for Peter to escape Jerusalem with the throngs of worshipers. Remember, it's daybreak. It's the Middle East. People walk home. They don't get in their cars and drive home. People want to get an early start on the trip. So thousands of pilgrims are exiting Jerusalem with their heads covered. It's early in the morning and Peter just covers his head and he just walks out with them. And he's gone. And really kind of walks off the stage of the book of Acts. He reappears briefly. But he exits. He exits. And of course, on the next day, those poor soldiers. Verse 18. Herod is mad. Where is he? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Torture him. When it says here they examined them, uh, he examined the centuries. That's a nice way of saying he tortured them. Okay, how much did they give you? What did the Christians give you? Who bought you? There's no way that there could be four squads of you, two guys sleeping next to him, chains on his hands, the the gate open, no way. This is an inside job. Who made the key? Who's getting the money? Torture them. And then when they, what could they say? He had him killed, which was normal procedure in the first century uh, Roman world. If you let a prisoner escape, you died, which made for really, really alert censures. And then the final narrative is here. Verses 20 to 23. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to go through these in detail. But suffice it to say that Herod moves on to another city. And and when he's in this other city, that area of Tyre and Sidon, which would be Phoenicia, modern day Lebanon, perhaps he was in Caesarea. And he comes out in the morning dressed in this beautiful robe. It probably had silver inlay. And the sun was hitting him. And he, was, he, was, he shone like a god. And he spoke to the people. And apparently he agreed to give them bread. And the people said, look, one like a god. Now, for a pagan of the Roman Empire, it was normal for them to view their leaders as gods. Caesar was a god. But Herod was a Jew. And Herod knew better. 
Herod knew the first commandment. Herod knew that there is no God but one God. And so Herod didn't actually quiet them down. Didn't say, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. It's only one God. And I'm a king because he made me a king. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. That's a whole other sermon. He's, he was a glory stealer. And what did God do? What did God do? Verse 22, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. In verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod. Same Greek word. Struck Peter to deliver him. Struck Herod to kill him. Now, I know that opens up a whole other set of questions. I thought God was love. Yes, he is. And he's fiercely opposed to sin and idolatry. God sent his angel to carry Peter out of the prison. God sent his angel to carry Herod out in a casket. Eaten by worms. Whether it was right that moment, I don't know. Whether it was an intestinal problem, I don't know. Some say he died five days later. I'm not sure. It's not like worms just appeared. He's writhing in pain on the ground with worms coming out of his stomach. No, it it was some sort of intestinal problem. He died. That's the bottom line. And worms ended up eating him when he was in the ground, for sure. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. God will carry you into and out of the storm. He is Lord of all. He is sovereign over all. We are called to trust him in the storm. This text began with Herod laying violent hands on the church, the people of God, specifically James and Peter, and it moves to the angel of the Lord, carrying Peter out and delivering him from Herod's hand. And it ends with God laying violent hands on Herod and taking him out. What's the conclusion of the matter? Verses 24 and 25, read them, look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God caused his word to increase and multiply in the midst of opposition Paul and Barnabas then return to Antioch, verse 25, to launch the mission to the Gentiles. It's probably not in chronological order, but it is in the order of thought. So when you lean out and say to the captain of the Carnival Cruise Liner, why are we going into the storm? Here's his answer. So that my word would increase and multiply, my son. Beginning in your life, I'm making you a disciple. You will be like Jesus. And my purposes for you are more than just relaxing on the deck. And I'm not saying God actually says this, all right? Relaxing on the deck and drinking that little drink in your shorts, but you're going to go in the storm, but you're going to come out with my glory on you. You're going to be my instrument so that my word would increase in Miami Lakes and Miramar and Pembroke Pines and Hialeah through your suffering, through that storm. And I'm going to work that. I'm going to carry you into it. I'm going to carry you out of it. And my word's going to multiply and the church is going to grow in Miami because men and women have to give up their life. Metaphorically speaking, maybe not in the future. That the life of Christ would come forth. And I look up at him, maybe with tears through my eyes, and say, okay, I'm just going to finish this. Yes, let's go. See, friends, 
God carried James and Peter into the storm of Herod's opposition, and James was carried out of that storm into glory with Jesus, while Peter was carried out of the storm into the hands of the church, God's people. And God will carry all of us into storms, and God will carry us out of every storm, but not in the way we may have first imagined. We can bank on this. That where Jesus is carrying us, that's where we want to go. Captain, I thought I wanted to go to St. Thomas. Go to Megan's Bay. But you know what? If you say, we're going to go west into that storm, that's where I want to go. And we will all, And we all want to go to and are headed towards eternal glory with him. That's where all the storms of life ultimately lead if we are in Christ. So that is what that is what his word is saying to us. Why the storm? So that the word would increase and multiply as it does in verse 24. This is the reason for your storm. God's glory. God's word increasing in you and those around you. And here's the appeal. God is the one who will increase and multiply his word through the opposition, through the storms. He will carry us in and he will carry us out. May we trust him. May we not complain, which is just unbelief. May we not compare with others. I mean, I'm sure James, right before he was going to get executed, was like thinking, Lord, I have a brother John and So I'm going to die here in 44 AD? And John's going to live to the end of the first century? Who knows when he died? 80, 90 AD? I believe he was the last apostle to die. That's not fair, Lord. Can I get another 46 years? The Lord says, but you want to go where I'm leading you, because that's where you're supposed to go, and I'll lead him where he's supposed to go, and that may be deliverance in one way for you and another way for him. So let's not compare the person who gets the job you wanted the ministry position you desire, the deliverance, the see salvations through their ministry to fill in the blank. It gets the relational peace that we all long for. Both fulfill God's plan. Both were carried into the storm and out of it by God's hand. May we remain strong in a bold witness of Jesus and his faithfulness through the storms of life, storms that provide the context for his work to increase and multiply in our community. May we boldly testify of Christ in the storms that God carries us into and out of. Let's pray. Lord, I I just confess to you that I've often been that passenger on the deck of the Carnival Cruise Liner, just shouting at the captain. Just don't understand why we're going into that. Why that storm? This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I want. So would you forgive me for my complaining and resisting going where you want to take me? Lord, it's because I've lost sight of your glory. I've had the dim lights, the fake lights of this world block out the radiant sun bright lights of your glory. And I pray that you open my eyes and you'd open the eyes of my friends. There are some here this morning who are just mad at you. They want to sue you. Bring a a lawsuit against God. This isn't what I signed up for. I want my money back. 
Oh God, have mercy upon them. Because I know they're bitter and very unhappy. And most importantly, Lord, your name will not be glorified with that attitude. So remind us all of how you have delivered us from the greatest storm, the storm of your wrath and judgment. And help us. We're weak, Lord. Or some are at the end of the rope. They're saying, I can't take it anymore, God. Well, you know, would you communicate to them? Or others can't sleep at night. They literally cannot sleep. Would you give them the grace to trust you that they might sleep like Peter slept? Even with metaphorical chains on their wrists and guards sleeping on either side of them. They're in your hands, not the world's hands. And Lord, may we be a church that trusts you, that your word might increase and multiply in South Florida. In Jesus' name. I realize that at a time like this, there are some that would like prayer. Let me just speak to you. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you're even in sin. It just means you're crawling up here saying, I'm tired of the storm. I'm tired of sleeping on the deck. I'm tired of the stench. I'm tired of the heat. I know it's God. I just need someone to agree with me and help me. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come up in a moment. We're going to have the leaders here to pray for you. Others of you may say, look, I'm not even a Christian, Al. I I don't even kind of believe there's a storm coming. I don't believe I need to be delivered from any storms. But you know... There's a doubt now. Maybe there is a storm. And I think I understand the gospel. And I'd like to pray with somebody. Oh, please come up for prayer. Please come up. And and there may be some of you that do say, I I just need to repent. I need to just tell somebody, man, I've been railing at the captain. I just want to change. I want to humble myself. Come up for prayer. But here's the blessing from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you.